Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david dot com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program these stories are about the id unleashed they're about the wildness contained in all of us i think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Lina Merwane, is one of the most prominent voices in Chilean literature today. A novelist, essayist, and cultural journalist, she's the author of the short story collection Las Infantas, a book of essays about the portrayal of AIDS in Latin American literature entitled Viral Voyages, and three novels, Postuma, Cercada, and Fruta Podrida. She has received writing grants from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Development Fund for Chile, and has a doctorate in Latin American literature from New York University, where she serves as a professor of world and Latin American literature and creative writing. Lina Merwane is here today to talk about her first novel, translated into English, Seeing Red, translated by Megan McDowell for Deep Vellum Press, a novel prior to its English translation that received the Anna Segers Literary Prize in Germany, and the prestigious Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Prize in Mexico in 2012. Roberto Bolaño described Lina Meruane's prose as having great literary force, emerging from the hammer blows of conscience, but also from the ungraspable and from pain. Enrique Villamatas describes Seeing Red as a novel of genius and disturbing intelligence. The New Yorker says that in Seeing Red, New York and her hometown Santiago are described in prose that blends sensation with memory, fury with fear. The story reveals its truth through the immediacy of description, vicious, repulsive, and beautiful. And Publishers Weekly in its starred review says that, blurring the lines between fiction and memoir, Seeing Red explores mortality, identity, and personal transformation. And for English language readers, serves as a stunning introduction to a remarkable author. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lena Meruane. Thank you. So the protagonist of Seeing Red, who shares your name, mm -hmm. Lena Marwane, she was born with a congenital weakness in her eyes. And the book opens with something that she's long anticipated, a blood vessel bursting in her retina 
and her starting to lose her vision. Mm-hmm. When this happens at the beginning of the book as a reader, I expect the book to be this journey into blindness to be one of uh, touch and sound. And, um, and instead, it becomes extremely visual. And I'm curious if you could talk about this. Was this something you anticipated originally, or was it uh, something that surprised you? Well, while I was, uh, it's, it's a very good question. Thank you. While I was thinking about writing this book that does start with a um, personal experience, uh, I went through this sort of ordeal uh, some 15 years ago. And I had thought about writing this novel. I first thought I was going to write a memoir, actually. But then it really went off and it turned into a novel because actually the writing took me there. Uh, We can talk more about that if you want later. But in any case, I was thinking about writing this uh, book because I thought the materials, sort of the story was a good story and uh, sort of it was, I mean, why wouldn't I use this material, right? So I actually tried it out a couple of times. It didn't really work. And in my mind, it was going to be a very sort of obscure book, literally, right? Uh, there's an expression in Spanish, which, by the way, your Spanish is, is excellent. Oh, um, so the, um, there's an expression in Spanish that says uh, that's called the novela negra, the black novel, which is really noir, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, it's going to be like a, like a noir, so to speak, right? But then I realized that, no, that everything was actually very visual. Everything came, everything that was a memory came back in very visually to the point that I actually talked to a psychologist in perception and I said, why is it that I do remember some episodes as if I had seen them while I know that I didn't? And she said, well, it is because when one has seen, even if you can't see anymore for a while... Uh, what happens is that the brain sort of fills in, right? Because the image is not created in the eye. The eye is only a receptor. But really, all sensation is sort of created or reproduced in the mind, right? In, In the brain. And so that kind of gave me some liberty to really sort of explore that. And mm. so while I thought it was going to be sort of a, a novel only based on sens- other sensations, right, it ended up being a very visual book. And a lot of people have commented on how sort of almost cinematographic it is to read the book. Um, and, yeah, so so interestingly, that's the way it turned out to be. Yeah. And it's interesting also because uh, the character, Lena Marwane, she doesn't have absolute blindness. She actually sees the blood, essentially, in her eye also. Mm-hmm. So she's flooded with visual stimulus, mm-hmm. but it's not actual images that she can interpret in the world. Yes. Um, speaking about the idea of... of the vision being constructed and part of the brain and part of memory. There's this great quote uh, near the end by the the Russian eye doctor that she sees. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no eye banks because no one donated dead eyes. It was believed, said Lex, the eye doctor, that memory lived in them, that the eyes were an extension of the brain, the brain peering out through the face to grasp reality. Some people thought the eyes were depositories of memory, he said, and others still believed that the soul was hidden there. It was almost like she was seeing a um, a scientist mystic mm-hmm. in a in a way. Mm-hmm. I think scientists are kind yeah. of mystics. I mean, they they have replaced our idea of God somehow. Yeah. No, it's true. They have that power. We give them that power too. Yes, yes. Yeah. Although I think that also things have changed so much. Uh, I mean, in general. I mean, I've studied the question of medicine for a long time, right? But. I mean, yes, the, I think the, the scientists and, medic and, and doctors used to have sort of this sort of godlike power, but now people have been more empowered, too, to sort of understand sort of some of the limits that, you know, because you, you see lots of doctors or because you're able to read about medicine online. So that has also, it, it's becoming to be contested in, in good ways and also in some bad ways. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this other thing that gets discovered by... Um the character, her editor, she's a writer, Lena Marwane is a writer in the book, and her editor uh, urges her to continue writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, she wants her to write through dictation. And she realizes that her writing does not come from her ear, but essentially comes from her hand, from the movement of her hand. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if if that's something you discovered yourself with your episode of Blindness? Uh, I think I, no, I, 
Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, the hmm, let me think. So, I guess. I guess I don't have that relation with my hand in the sense that I don't think that the writing comes from the hand. It's something that my character believes. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's interesting that you, uh, she's actually called Lucina and she signs her books as Lina, right? So there's a sort of this double identity, sort of my own identity is sort of uh, separated in two, right? This, the character and her literary persona, right? And so because I really did want to mark the fact that there is sort of a fictional production of a character, although it does start with me at some point, it really goes off. And so this character, Lucina, sees her uh, connection to writing uh, sort of very sort of t- very sort of... Uh, connected to her body in a very sort of literal way. But I actually do dictate. Huh. Uh, like now that I've been here in the Northwest, I asked this editor if I could write a piece on the Northwest. And because I've been sort of traveling and moving around and walking through the cities, what I've done is I've actually dictated to my phone. And uh, that has been really useful because I, I can't just sit down and write all the time. So I think that I can separate myself from my character in that way, yeah. where I can dictate and I cannot see what I'm writing, while my character insists that her writing is connected to her seeing. And this is why she sort of becomes so obsessed with recovering sight. Because if she doesn't recover sight, she can't be who she is. Right. Well, it, Seeing Red is often called an autobiographical novel, and uh, for obvious reasons, uh, the, narr- the protagonist sharing your name, mm-hmm. um, the dual life in New York and Santiago that y- you both have uh, a s- uh, shared profession and a uh, health crisis with, with your eyes. Yes. Um, and as you said at the beginning, that you, you started this as potentially as a memoir, but didn't it didn't go the way you wanted it to go. So tell us a little bit about the advantages of writing it as uh, somewhere in between a memoir and a novel, in a sense, versus a purely fictionalized novel Mm -hmm. or a memoir. Mm -hmm. So the way I see it is sort of a book that is, yes, as you said, it's, it's not an autobiography. It's also not exactly a purely imaginative fiction, right? We we have a term for that. It's called autofiction. And it is when the author brings in her own name to represent herself as other as somebody who who I am not, right? And so I see it sort of moving from the very real to the completely imagined, right? So it's sort of, it's, it's, it's not that it's mixed all the time, it's that it starts one place and ends in the other. And it's because I really set out to write a memoir. I really wanted to write in that genre. I wanted to write a very short book that only talked about what had happened. There had been sort of like a maybe like 12 years between the actual event and my writing. And so many of the things had been forgotten. And also many of the sort of the real events didn't matter to me so much as sort of the questions that appeared as I wrote. Mm -hmm. And those questions, I needed to sort of go into the fictional realm in order to sort of figure out what would happen if this character does what she wants to do, which was not me. Right. And so I think that that's sort of the fiction gave me the liberty to go to places that not did not exist in my real life and to um, explore questions that I hadn't explored in my experience. Right. But sort of gave me gave me that liberty to uh, move forward. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I I think that that was really useful. I mean, I I really discovered how much uh, fiction allows you to take so many liberties. And were there any touchstone memoirs that you were looking at when you thought it was going to be a memoir project? And likewise, are, were there any uh, touchstone books of autofiction that you that were influential for you when, mm-hmm. when reimagining it as an autofiction? Mm-hmm. So what I really had in mind, I've said this before, but it's um, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Platt which I read when I was in my 20s, and it was a shocking book. I mean, it's like, and, and I really went back to that book in my mind because she starts out this autobiographical book about her depression uh, when she comes to New York. She's a young woman who comes to New York, and she says something like, I should be having the time of my life. I'm in New York. 
and she's deeply depressed, right? And she starts from there. So there was a sort of eerie connection of me having come to New York uh, where I should have had be having the time of my life. And I wasn't actually, I was going through this uh, very difficult uh, period in my life. And so I really connected back to the, not only to that event in her uh, memoir, but also uh, to sort of the, the ways in which she talks about depression in this very raw way, to the point that you have a sort of a very physical experience while reading that book. It's like this sort of openness uh, in detail, right, where she really goes, uh, she doesn't sort of save herself. She doesn't show herself in, under a good light. She really goes into the, the, the very sort of extreme uh, events that happen to her there. And then also I was thinking of a very short book by William Styron. I never can remember the, the title in, in English because I read it in Spanish, actually. It's Esa Visible Oscuridad. It's a short memoir um, on his depression. And I remember also reading it in my 20s and thinking, oh, my God, I can't, I can't finish this book. I was alone at home. And I, it was just so physical. I was having all kinds of, like, physical reactions to that book. Is it Darkness Visible? Yes, Thank you. Darkness visible. And so I really sort of put it down and ended the book the next day in that morning so I could just have some sunlight because it was really intense. And so I really wanted to do that. And that's what I set out to do. But then, as I was saying, new questions and new ideas and also the ways in which my writing really took on and, and, and characters really became fictionalized. And so I really had fun writing the book. Instead of like having to go back to the only to the saddest part or the difficult parts, it, I, yeah. it brought in humor, black humor, uh, nasty comments. My character becomes sort of this a little bit of an evil being, <laughs> etc. Yeah, no, you have this great interview where you interview Enrique Villamatas, and who also uses his own name for his protagonist. Yes. Oh, yeah, uh, you asked me that, and I didn't answer that part. No, but I was curious about something that you suggested about the ways he used his own name mm -hmm. it's, uh, as, a, as a device to heighten his writing's characteristic ambiguity, is what you, you said in the mm -hmm. English translation of that, mm -hmm. that interview. Do you think that's true for you, too, that it, it heightens the, the, the ambiguity of the writing? Yes, I do think so. I think that that sort of it, it's sort of an opportunity to play with sort of a lot of elements, and it also sort of it creates a a distance between the writer outside of the book and the character inside of the book. I think that it used to be the case that people, when they when they wrote memoir or autobiography, sort of back then, really wanted to present themselves as some sort of hero. And I, what I find in contemporary autofiction is that actually it's used more to show sort of the obscure and uh, sometimes disgusting and also ambiguous elements in a character that you wouldn't save yourself sort of right. publicly, but it allows you to sort of delve into, into those sort of more complex elements. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Lena Merwane about her fir first book in English, Seeing Red from Deep Vellum. Um, so there, you mentioned there's two names for your protagonist. I don't know if there are two, if you in real life have two names, but the protagonist has two names, mm -hmm. Lucina and, and Lena. Yes. And I thought a lot about that. And I was wondering if I was reading too much into this, but I, I'm curious your thoughts. Um, so I was thinking of, of St. Lucy or Santa Lucia, who mm -hmm. gouges out her own eyes. But I was also thinking about... Um, Lucy is the is a, a word for light, yes. and if you move from Lucina to Lena, in a way you're taking the light out of literally taking the light out of the name. Mm. Is is this was this intentional on, on your part? Well, it's hard to remember now. I mean, this this book has been out in Spanish for a long time, but I have played uh, previously with my own name. There's a previous novel. It's a very, very short novel uh, that I wrote in year 2000. And the character who also resembles a little bit of me is called Lucia. And so I went from Lucia to Lucina. There was a sort of this sort of traveling name. I don't know why I had been choosing that. And it's true that it really goes back to the question of light, which here became really relevant. Um, but, um, 
Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, uh, the question of sort of taking the light out of Lena. What it is, What is true is that I, as Lena, have been asked a number of times whether my real name is Lena. Hmm. Because in Spanish, there's a number of names, well, actually in English too, but Carolina, Catalina, Paulina, uh, who are like long names that include Lena, right? And so I've always been asked if this is a short for a longer name, which made me very conscious uh, really from the start that sort of what, what is there in names, right? I mean, is it that my name is sort of a half name uh, how much of that feels strange as a, a name that names identity, et cetera, right? So I've always been very playful and, and mindful of the use of, of names. But yes, I, I didn't really think so much about it, but, but there is a question of light there. And as I have continued to read on blindness, I did discover, but I didn't know it then when I was writing, that there's a St. Lucy and St. Lucila, right? that actually deal with the question of the eyes, not only the, the light, but the, the sort of uh, taking the eyes off and all of that right. as, a sort of, as a sort of sacrifice. And then you, you, turn of, you sort of flip that story with the epigram you include of Clemente Palma, the Los Ojos de Lina. Yes. That, that hor- it's very terrifying, that story. Yeah. Have you read the, the entire story? Yeah, yeah, that story is terrifying. And, uh-huh. it's, um, and Lina, is, that's short for a, a longer name in, in that story too, I believe. I don't remember that part. Ah, that's interesting. I, th- I think it's Ahalina or something or Axelina. I don't remember. Yeah. That's a very good one, actually. But but I t- I mean, it, yeah. So let me just tell the story a little bit. So the story uh, of Clemente Palma, who's a well-known modernist writer in Peru, uh, was sent to me many years ago by a friend from Cuba. And he said, oh, I think you would really like this short story. I hadn't read it. And it is about uh, a man who is very impressed uh, by his girlfriend's green demonic eyes, right? And it's really described in that way. And when I read it, I felt, oh, there is this sense of her eyes being demonic. What does that mean? And I thought it does mean that she has some sexual power that he is frightened uh, about. Um, and so what happens is that in the story, when they're going to get married, she actually takes her eyes off and gives them to him as a present, which for me means that she really sort of puts down this power that she has and gives it to him because when she is going to get, be married, she's going to lose her power. She's going to give the power to him, which really made me think how much uh, we as sort of a culture, uh, the Western culture, believes that there is power in vision. And if we really go back to Oedipus and Teresias, it's all about sort of the power of eyes, right? So, so there's something about this woman giving her power to her husband, right? And sort of becoming sort of a more servile, uh, disempowered woman within marriage, right? So, so this really made me think, and it was really useful to have. It was really funny that it's uh, Lena's eyes or the eyes of Lena uh, in the story because it... Right. Gave it sort of another layer uh-huh. of the Lenas in the book, right, in and out of the book. But I really also wanted uh, to sort of in, invert that relation of power. Because one of the questions that I did want to explore was um, the ways in which we think of somebody who is disabled, in this case blind, right? We think of a disabled, a blind woman as a powerless woman, Right. Somebody because she has lost her power. She has lost her eyes. And so the question is, is there any power in this woman? Is it really true that disabled people are powerless and how much power can they gain precisely of that place of vulnerability? So this was one of the questions that I was really engaged with. And so the 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 sort of the character starts sort of turning the ball around, so to speak. Yeah. No, that's, that's that's great. Let let's have our listeners hear a, a, a little bit of the prose from Scene Red. Sure. Okay. So the book is uh, for for people who are listening. The book is written in short fragments. Uh, I really tried to think of each fragment as a short scene that would be sort of very 
sort of intense and, and strong. So the book actually opens with the moment, so I'm, this is not a spoiler, of course, the book opens with her uh, going blind, and I'm going to read that first very short fragment. Burst. It was happening. Right then. Happening. They'd been warning me for a long time, and yet. I was paralyzed, my sweaty hands clutching at the air while the people in the living room went on talking, roaring with laughter. Even their whispers were exaggerated, while I. And someone shouted louder than the rest, Turn the music down, don't make so much noise or the neighbors will call the cops at midnight. I focused in on that thundering voice that never seemed to tire of repeating that even on Saturdays the neighbors went to bed early. Those gringos weren't night owls, like us, party people to the core. Good protestant folks who would indeed protest if we kept them from, from their sleep. On the other side of the walls, above our bodies and under our feet, too, these gringos, so used to greeting dawn with their socks on and their shoes already tied, were restless. Gringos who sat down in their imp impeccable underwear and iron faces to eat their breakfasts of cereal with cold milk. But none of us were worried about those sleepless gringos, their heads buried under pillows, their throats stuffed with pills that would bring no relief as long as we kept trampling their rest. If the people in the living room went on trampling, that is, not me. I was still in the bedroom, kneeling, my arms stretched out towards the floor. In that instant precisely, in that half-light, in that commotion, I found myself thinking about the neighbors' oppressive sleeplessness, imagining them as they turned out the lights after stuffing earplugs in their ears, how they push in so hard the silicon would burst. I thought I would much rather have been the one with broken earplugs, the one with eardrums pierced by shards. I would... I would rather have been the old woman resolutely placing the mask over her eyelids, only to, to yank it off again and switch on the light. I wish for that while my still suspended hand encountered nothing. There was only the alcoholic laughter coming through the walls and splattering me with saliva. Only Manuela's strident voice yelling over the noise for the umpteenth time. Come on, guys, keep it down a little. No, please don't, I said to myself. Keep talking, keep shouting, howl, growl if you must, die laughing. That's what I said to myself. My body seized up through only a few seconds had passed. I'd only just come into the master bedroom, just leaned over, the over to search for my purse and the syringe. I had to give myself an injection at 12 o'clock sharp, but now I wouldn't make it because the pile of precariously balanced coats let my purse lie to the floor. Because instead of stopping conscientiously, as I should have, I bent over and reached to pick it up. And then a firecracker went off in my head. But no, it was no fire I was seeing. It was blood spilling out inside my eye. The most shockingly beautiful blood I have ever seen. The most outrageous, the most terrifying. The blood gushed out, but only I could see it. With absolute clarity, I watched as it thickened. I saw the pressure rise. I watched as I got dizzy. I saw my, my stomach turn, saw that I was starting to retch, and even so, I didn't straighten up or move an inch, didn't even try to breathe while I watched the show, because that was the last thing I would see that night through that eye, a deep black blood. And listening to Lena Merwane read from Seeing Red, you mentioned as an introduction to that reading some of the choices you make in, in syntax. So there's very short sentences 
or short short sections, mm-hmm. and there are um, fragmentary sections. There's an absence of paragraphs, and sometimes there are sentences that are interrupted that end with before they end. Essentially, mm-hmm. can can you talk a little bit more about the effect you're you're trying to create with some of these choices? Yes, as I started out writing, I, I really felt that I wanted to convey through the syntax um, what the protagonist is actually feeling. I've always felt, uh, I've always thought that punctuation has to work that way in literature. While there are all these rules of where you put commas and and periods and where you cut up paragraphs, etc., uh, I actually never think of punctuation that way. I think about sort of the way the sentence breathes and how it's connected to the body of the protagonist or the narrator. So um, so I really wanted to do that. And I've been working on that sort of in previous books, but here I really got that down because I really wanted to convey a sense that she is left speechless by the event of bleeding into her eye. Sort of this sort of new event leaves her... <sighs> Suspended, right? Mm. So I really wanted to suspend sentences where they should not. And it was really interesting because the the translator had to also deal with the fact that she had to interrupt the sentence somewhere. And of course, the copy editor was intrigued on whether this was bad translation or if that was how it looked like in the original, right? So we really had to be very careful, the translator, the copy editor, and I, to sort of respect that sort of uh, interruption because it can it can seem bad translation. I mean, especially because it's happening right at the beginning. So you, you're not, you, you as a reader don't know. Right. And it really reminded me, there's a really wonderful modernist Brazilian author, Clarice Lispector. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was very young, I lived in, in Madrid and I worked at the book fest in Madrid. And I worked for this very good publishing house who published this writer. And so her, one of her books started with, Three dots, like, a, you know. An ellipsis. Yes, an ellipsis. And um, that's the way the, the novel started, right? And so I, I saw this book because I was a super huge fan, right, of the Spectre's work. But then the readers would come back the next day and say, you know, I think there's a, a problem with the printing. The first page is missing. And so I realized that people were really taken aback by this, and uh, I thought it was really interesting. So then the the next days I sold the book as prefacing it by saying, there's no pages missing, this is the way it starts, right? So I, I was really, I mean, I know how sort of punctuation can really set people off and think that there is a mistake. So that is actually very tricky. And as a fluent English speaker... Were you involved at all in the translation of Sangre and El Ojo, or, or were there any particular debates or disagreements you had with the translator? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually trusted, I, I had to trust uh, Megan, right? My, my only concern with Megan is that she's a very good translator of Alejandro Sambra's work, mm-hmm. another Chilean writer who's very famous, actually. And uh, his style and mine have like nothing nothing in common. So I was at one point thinking, oh, because she, she, uh, Alejandro Sambra's work has been described as, uh, her translation of Alejandro Sambra's work has been described as uh, very good. And I thought, oh, is this novel going to sound like somebody else's work? Right. So so I did read sort of the, the beginning, the first pages, but I also decided not to read the entire book just because I am a perfectionist with language. And when I reread my book in Spanish, I want to correct it again, right? And so I thought that I shouldn't do that because I was it was going to take me forever. And I was uh, sort of, I'm so particular with English that I would want to change things that are correctly said in English and try to correct them into things that are not correctly said in English. Because one of my issues with English, I mean, I, I know I'm fluent most of the time, but idioms and expressions are very, very hard to get for a non-native. And so I had to trust that Megan was doing the right thing, sort of turning it into sort of good English rather than sort of the correct English that I have in my mind. And, you know, and so so I really sort of left her work. Uh, and then what I did was I answered the 400 questions that were presented to me by both Megan, the translator, and the copy editor. Huh. 
So that's the only moment when I really went, in order to answer a question, I would go back and see if there was a mistake before, a misunderstanding, you know, the use of a false cognate or something like that. And sometimes I did find some little detail that didn't make sense with what was following. And sometimes it was only a question of like a comma, a period, um, I listened to confirmation, yes. an interview with her where she said that the most difficult thing for her was the title. Maybe because it, yes. it maybe because it is an idiom in Spanish. It is. It means it can mean being angry. Yes. And exactly. in English, blood in the eye wouldn't really convey that, like yes. seeing red would. But that's what I wanted as the title. Blood in the eye. Yes, yeah. I, that's what I wanted. And then everybody <laughs> was saying like it's a terrible title, and I was like, well, but it's very literal. Right. So you see, so so the thing is like one is becomes very literal with one's own work, and because seeing eye didn't say anything to me. I mean, I don't know that expression. So it sounded like a very sort of foreign thing. Yeah. It didn't make sense well, to that's me. That's fascinating. Yes. But then everybody has commented on how good the title is. And so I'm actually very glad that I, you know, let Megan do her work. You mentioned earlier how this book interrogates uh, illness narratives, among yes. other things, mm-hmm. and, and also in a, in a gender-specific way as well as more in general. Yes. And I think that's one of the ways Seeing Red really is, becomes a surprising and compelling and unique book. And there's one uh, interview where you described it as about the cruelty of being taken care of and the predatory nature of those who are in need. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that flipping of the power dynamic because in a sense uh lena is refusing to be helpless and in a way the people who want to help her become burdens in the book but not only burdens to her it also crosses over and becomes unclear who the victim is Mm -hmm. because we her boyfriend ignacio really is someone who's willing to do a lot of sacrifice on her behalf yes and she ends up essentially exploiting that that tendency in him. Yes. And so the question of victimhood and power becomes very unclear in yes. a, in an uns- it, to the point where it almost feels like we're moving into horror. Yes, yes. Well, actually, while I was writing the book, one of the questions was, where is this book going? Because I had separated myself from my own experience, I was sort of left uh, maybe at the first third of the book with, wait, so what is going to happen, right? And as I continue to write... I didn't really know, and I was really sort of uh, at, at a loss. But then I realized that this was what actually I was trying to do, figure out sort of how uh, sort of the, the victim and the victimary sort of were sort of tied into this sort of slave-master relation, which is also the relation between the, the disabled and the the one who takes care of her in this case, right? And so I, I, I figured out, and then I, I found, I sort of went back into the story of Clemente Palma, et cetera, and I thought, yes, what, what this is is actually it's a horror novel, right? It's really going into that direction, and this is where I felt like, okay, so now I know what I'm doing, let, you know, going from memoir to horror novel, and I let it go, and I really went in, in that direction. It was really the 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 place where I really started to enjoy the book. I bet. And and it's interesting because despite its horror elements, your translator thinks that Seeing Red is a love story at its heart. And I'm curious if you think it's a love story at its heart as well. I do think that there is a question posed on love relations. As you were saying before, yes, those who try to help her are a burden. They're also sort of taking away her chances of learning to live in this new situation because they're trying to protect, overprotect her. So love can be very, um, what's the word for this, uh, suffocating. So on the one hand, so the question of, oh, love, this wonderful thing. Yes, this wonderful thing. But then also love can be suffocating on the one hand. Mother's love, unconditional love, the promises of love, all of that can be very dangerous. So I did think of this book as a book that explores uh, relations that are mediated by the idea of love. But then I also wanted to interrogate what that means. So is love always a good thing? How much of love is good and how much it becomes like a bad thing, suffocating, or even a tool to manipulate others? And and it usually has been the case that it has been women who fall in love and they really fall into like this hole right, where they can't escape. They're kind of trapped by love. So I really wanted to look at 
uh, how this could be also inverted. And I think one of the sort of shocking elements of the book is that the the, the character of Ignacio uh, is so servile. He's so loving that he becomes sort of this victim of her because he's so lo- loving. So he, he is trapped in the ways that we usually see women trapped in love. Mm-hmm. And just out of curiosity... Um, I don't know if you're married or have a partner, but do you have a partner named I Ignacio? I do, I do. No, not naming Ignacio. No, okay. no character in the book carries uh, their name, their original name, because it is true that there are the, some sort of real friends and family members, but I did build characters out of them. Right. So they don't carry their names just to signal that it is not them, right? And so my partner... Um, was waiting for me to finish the book, I think impatiently, because he knew what the book was about. And But I really don't share until books are finished. And so he was kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. And then I said, well, the, the book is ready. Why don't you read it? And uh, so he read it really like in a wink. And he came back to me and said that uh, he was. He had been a little terrified of how I had sort of portrayed our relationship, and then had seen that he didn't feel identified at all with that character, and that he could sort of see the real events and how I had sort of worked over them and and sort of uh, created so many layers upon layers that it everything had turned into something else. Mm. So I think he was quite delighted and relieved when reading the book. <laughs> and he actually really liked sort of how things had turned out. But interestingly, uh, his family members didn't like the character and were kind of annoyed by the fact that uh, the, 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 the partner in the book, Ignacio, uh, is so weak. Like They were like angered by like, yeah. oh, why does she you know, produce this character out of you instead of sort of a better, more heroic, right. uh, more uh, strong character. Huh. But he didn't have an issue. I mean, he's, he's a good reader also. He understands sort of what literature is doing uh, in contrast to real life. Well, uh, I don't know if, if you see an affinity between these two things, but uh, I also read Viral Voyages, oh. your, your scholarly work on, wow. on AIDS mm-hmm. uh, as portrayed in Latin American literature. Uh-huh. And I felt like there are in many ways a great affinity between these two books. And uh, one of the ways is is this flip in the power dynamic that mm-hmm. you're um, telling stories of um, AIDS survivors with agency and with power to tell their own story. Uh-huh. Do, do you see a relation between between the books in some Well, in some they're, 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 I, I actually, so I came to the United States to... Uh, pursue a PhD, right? And I had set out to write a dissertation on the representation of AIDS, as you were saying. But while I was doing that and reading for that project, I wrote two novels. So one of them is Fruta Podrida, Rotten Fruit, and the other one is Seeing Red. So basically in 10 years of work, I was reading mostly narratives of uh, people undergoing diseases, sort of testimonials or fictional uh, works. And so I find that these three books somehow are a involuntary trilogy, I call it, taking sort of a, um, a phrase uh, Uh, by Mario Lebrero, a Uruguayan writer. So it's sort of a trilogy. It's like these three books are nurtured by all that reading and thinking that I was doing. The two novels are actually quite different. Uh, They're really exploring the same question, but the answers that the novels bring are the opposite. So in Rotten Fruit, uh, the question of how do people sort of uh, respond to the call of health is of resistance. So the character there sort of doesn't want to get her health back and resists that. In Seeing Red, on the other hand, it's the opposite. It's, okay, so I have been promised health by the institution. I want to get it back. I'm going to make sure I get it back, right? I recover. So they're really sort of, like, they're sort of books that mirror each other in sort of strange ways. And in the middle of those two is my dissertation, Viral Voyages, right, that now is a book. And um, and I was looking at sort of power relations and how, but mostly at how uh, those men sort of narrated 
uh, their diseases. And there's one very interesting case, Reynaldo Arenas, the Cuban writer, who's, who became very famous. He lived in New York, and he wrote a very famous memoir called uh, Before Night Falls, where he actually accuses Fidel Castro of having uh, put him in danger by throwing him, him into exile into New York where he got sick, right? And so, but he was also writing at the same time that he was writing his memoir, obsessively, a novel, like a 500-pages novel, which takes on the same materials of his memoir or his autobiography and turns it into the craziest novel, And so I was really interested in the ways that you can use these materials in sort of multiple ways, right? So I kind of did that, the same thing, but sort of in one in one book instead of two. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Lena Marwane about her book, Seeing Red. Another thing that made me think of seeing red in Viral Voyages was this idea of the female disappearance syndrome, mm-hmm. the um, exclusion of the female body as represented in, in AIDS narratives. Yes. And I, you, were, you mentioned Clarice Lispector. We had um, a, a couple of months ago, Idra Novi, the translator for mm. Clarice Lispector, was a guest. And her book, her first novel was Ways to Disappear, which looked into both political disappearance in Latin America, but also the disappearance of, of women in narrative. Um, but there's also, if we think about this in terms of like what is seen and what is unseen and, um, blindness within narrative, it feels like there's this connection also in the way in which Lena, the character refuses to disappear. Yeah. She refuses to fall into a category and, and, and disappear in the, in the novel. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I'm very interested in that sort of issue and, uh, True that I wrote a whole chapter of uh, Viral Voyages sort of really looking into what had happened to women in the AIDS crises, not only here, because that's also happened here, but in Latin America and also in how the fiction, all those novels actually uh, make the women disappear. The women or what uh, femininity means as a sort of as a value, as a tenderness, um, motherhood, etc. Or how it's turned into some sort of negative thing as if the women were those who carry the virus and infect men. I mean, there was many, many ways in which anything that signified feminine was turned into either an absent thing or a bad thing. Right. So I'm very aware of sort of gender politics in narrative, not only in the books, but also outside of the books where it's sort of harder to be a women writer than uh, a man. So all of these things, I think also somehow, but I wasn't so, so conscious of that. I mean, I didn't want to write a thesis into my novel. It's, it's really a right. kind of different object, right? But but I was interested and I've always been interested in so how, how sort of women circulate, how they're seen, how they're empowered. Now, on a contradictory side, um, the protagonist of Seeing Red is also a very sort of negative character in the way that she can become very mean and very manipulative, right? So I'm also not trying to produce some sort of ultra-feminist um, um, rendering of a woman character in the way that she's heroic and epic and good, right? right. So I, I'm also questioning those roles. I mean, I'm not just sort of trying to produce a good feminine character. I would love to pivot from here and talk a little bit about setting, uh, bo- setting in relationship to uh, things that get disappeared in narratives. Mm-hmm. And what I mean in, by that is this book takes place in Santiago and, yes. and in New York City. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a double vision for our narrator around these these two places. But they feel you link them around the event of 9-11 or two events of 9-11 yes. because they both have a, a, a deep historical significance for their respective countries. But it's also interesting how I'm guessing most of our listeners don't know that there are two 9-11s, which is another way in which one narrative dominates over another narrative Mm -hmm. in in a way. Can can you talk about um, the use of 9-11 in in Seeing Red and how it connects the two lands? Yes, it's it's a very good question. Actually, the sort of the mirror effect of 9-11 was in the original manuscript more visible and I kind of made it disappear a little bit just because I felt that it could be read as an opportunistic uh, element in the book. So it's more subtle in in what turned out to be uh, the published novel. But I did want to sort of just slightly draw the line and sort of because 
there's this thing about doubling, right? There's two eyes. And so there's also two spaces, two people, uh, two histories that are really deeply connected. Because, yes, there's the 9-11 that... Uh, sort of marks uh, or commemorates the day of the military coup uh, that deposed the socialist president, uh, Salvador Allende, right, and marked the beginning of a very long and terrible dictatorship, which is uh, the time I was growing up. Right? I was three years old at the, by the time of the coup. But then, so I had just sort of arrived to my life, so to speak, as three years old when uh, that 9-11 happens. But then when I came to New York, I had just arrived to sort of this new life, right? And then there's another 9-11. Where there's also an interesting sort of mirror effect is that these two 9-11s are connected sort of also politically because 9-11, the Chilean 9-11 was uh, supported, right, and even sort of pushed by the United States, right? All those Latin American dictatorships were really an effect of North American politics, right? And so there's a sense of like, oh, this happened back then, and then I'm coming to the United States, and it's happening again, but it's now it's the enemies of the United States who are actually producing this 9-11, right? Mm. So it's just sort of thrown very sort of subtly in there. You're a very good reader, so you followed that line, David. But um, yeah, so... That's. I, I really wanted to sort of mark that because it was sort of a sort of a shocking kind of sense of, um, oh, here we go again, another nine eleven. And there's a way in which both New York and Santiago actually feel like they become characters in the book to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean is how so? Well, because if, for one thing, Lena in her descriptions of the world, lots of things end up having eyes. So fingers have eyes. We notice the eyes in paintings, but the the double holes where the twin towers were mm-hmm. are described like eyes and the, yes. the bullet holes in the walls from Bazooka Fire and Santiago mm-hmm. feel like eyes. And they not only feel like eyes, they feel like the cities are becoming witnesses to something. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. in a strange way, it feels there's this... Um, eerie animism that happens mm-hmm. with with the landscapes just, in the just book. to add to that it's it's actually for me the image is that the cities more than witnesses have become blinded because those bazooka holes in the buildings she thinks of them and it's actually true that um the government palace was bombed and destroyed but then also sort of redone but those other buildings weren't. So you still can see those bazooka holes in some of those near, nearby buildings, right? So she thinks of those buildings as how her retinas must look, like retinas filled with holes. Mm-hmm. So it's like the those buildings have been blinded. At the same time, the Twin Towers are two important buildings that disappeared. So, And it's also the fact that the Twin Towers have been taken out of the skyline, as if like eyes taken out of a face, right? So there's a sort of this blinding effect where it, I think it's mostly because uh, she is always constantly projecting on the outside what is happening in the inside. So there's a sort of this, uh, everything becomes very subjective. Even the rendering of landscape becomes a part of her own body. Yeah, it does feel like there's this collapse of exterior and interior. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with all of this eye imagery, it also made me think of this quote, in, uh, again, from Viral Voyages of a medical linguist, uh, Paula Treichler, who says, AIDS is an epidemic of signification. It requires an attentive gaze. The language of metaphor less reflects the reality of the disease than it symbolically constructs it. And these rhetorical mechanisms can lead to terrible social realities around the response to the, to the disease. Mm-hmm. Metaphors of an epidemic are as contagious as the disease itself. So in a sense, the the language of the disease spreads with the disease, mm-hmm. uh, with potential pitfalls of metaphor, which yes. made me wonder um, what thought process, thought process you went through in regards to using and avoiding metaphor in, in seeing red. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, that's, that's a very, very good question. Um, 
I was very interested in not only what Paula Treacher says, I really like her work, but also Susan Sontag really was sort of the somebody who put out there the question of the use and the misuse of metaphors in those two books that she wrote, one on cancer and the other one on AIDS, sort of separated by 10 years. I think it was 1978 and 1988. And these are really good books because she really talks about how metaphors become uh, sort of the worst part of a disease, where people are really blamed or sort of they're thrown all these metaphors uh, where they can't really escape what language is doing to their own realities. And so while the other novel that I wrote, uh, the other novel of the trilogy, Rotten Fruit, is a sort of very allegorical novel, this one, actually, I was really trying to escape the work of metaphor. Sort of, so I really wanted to write a very literal book. Um, I think uh, readers can sort of read metaphors into it, but I was sort of conscientiously trying not to write metaphorically here. I was trying to be very, very literal. I mean, as far as you can, because interestingly, Susan Sontag was accused, right? Everybody said, like, you can't write without metaphors. And she went, so when she wrote the second part of the book in 1988, she said, of course, we can't write without metaphors. Metaphors are part of language. So I'm aware of that, right? But she said, the question is uh, trying to avoid bad metaphors. So anyway, I was trying to avoid metaphors. I'm sure there's plenty of them in the book because you can't really avoid them. Especially with the eye and vision. Like, yes. That's so, it almost feels like um, metaphors are inherent to the eye at this point. Yes. But the same but the, at the same time there's been many many books written about blindness that are really sort of conveying the metaphors of power and vision and all kinds of ideas. So I what I was trying really to sort of not do that. Yeah. Well there were other ways and uh, in, in not looking for metaphors but for looking in connections to your body of work when I was reading Seeing Red we do see uh, appearances of AIDS survivors, minor characters, a couple times yes. in in the book. Yes. One who's who's lost a vision in an eye from a, a stroke from the disease, but also wondered about. Uh, I I felt like we saw other concerns of yours from your career in in seeing red too. For instance, there's the the pressures of her family in Chile to have a child, and it made me think of Contra los Hijos, mm -hmm. the, uh, where you examine. Um, the pressures for women to become mothers. Yes. Um, but all, and then also, I wondered if this was too much of a stretch. But um, there's a sense of exile in the book. I feel uh, for Lena that she has two homes, but in a way, she has no home. Mm -hmm. And I know your latest book in Spanish, and I hope hopefully it will come out at some point in English, is about you exploring your Palestinian heritage. Yes. And I, I wondered if that was perhaps a nod to s some of that. Um, homelessness and, a, and a, a looking for home that happens in Seeing Red? All the books are somehow connected because they're all connected less to your biography and more to your obsessions. So for me, it's like I was, I was writing Seeing Red and I was starting to take notes for this other book uh, against um, daughters and sons, I, I think would be the translation for Contra los Hijos. Um, I wasn't thinking at all about the Palestinian book that really came almost like an accident. I, I went to Palestine and then started writing that book, uh, sort of once I was there, sort of almost like dictating the yeah. book. So I, I wasn't really aware of that. But I do think that once you leave your country, you become very sensitive and very aware of sort of the sense of homelessness. Um, I'm not thinking of homelessness as a necessarily evil thing. I think that it really does make you aware of what sort of the sense of what refugees uh, go through and uh, people who are evicted from their homes. And so you sort of like, this, you know, this antenna comes up and you become very, very um, attentive to that, those realities. So I think that somehow the, the experience of having left Chile uh, as also my grandparents left Palestine and sort of relocating in New York with a husband who is also somebody who has relocated uh, from Spain uh, to New York, sort of, and also having only friends that also have relocated from other places, right, really does give you a sense of 
all these places you belong to and at the same time you don't. Mm. So there are sort of... Uh, I mean, I have, I do have a sense also that while my books are very different in even the style, they are connected through sort of a line of obsessions. And actually, the book that I'm writing right now also comes back to the question of childless women. Hmm. What, can you talk a little bit about your new project? Um, I can't really because, not because I don't want to, but because I don't really know at this point where it's going. But it does... Uh, have as a protagonist a Bolivian woman who is a sort of displaced person in Chile who has decided to leave her children hmm. uh, for a number of reasons uh, which are not so clear right now. And there is a connection between that and that old war uh, between uh, Chile, Bolivia and Peru uh, that is a 19th century war uh, that where the new frontiers were to be decided, sort of very unjustly for Bolivians, actually, who were left without an outlet to the to the ocean. Uh, but also sort of the, the current tensions between Chile, Peru, and Bolivia, right, as, as, as an, a, a sort of ongoing war. Hmm. And can you speak a little more about the Palestinian book as well? I, I, in reading about it, I was surprised to learn that Chile has the largest Palestinian community outside of the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what happened is that um, Palestinians started leaving that area when they were under the Ottoman Empire. Not only Palestinians, but what now are Lebanese, the Lebanese and Syrians, right? That whole area was taken by the Turks. And um, so the Christian communities mostly were under threat and they were forced to do military service. They were also sent uh, sort of in the vanguard. So there were uh, cannon fodder, etc. So people started leaving that area and many of them moved to the United States and to Latin America. Somehow, and it's not clear how that happened, many of them ended up in Chile. So that's the story of my grandfather and my grandmother who were actually born in the same town but actually met in Chile. Oh. Um, but the assimilation that was uh, happening at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, um, that, that immigration really assimilated quickly. They really wanted to leave behind uh, the situation uh, they had lived and they wanted to make sure that the children would adapt and become sort of uh, have more opportunities in the place where they were, right? And so assimilation was very quick and uh, languages were lost, etc. So my father grew up as a Chilean and I grew up as a ultra Chilean, so to speak, right? I mean, I had, I knew that there was this Palestinian thing in my family, but I wasn't politicized. I, I, I wasn't sort of raised in a Palestinian identity, as a lot of people are in Chile, actually, but not me. So when I came to the United States, precisely at the point of the fall of the Twin Towers, I did have a very acute sense of how Muslims were portrayed and how Palestinians were portrayed. I was watching TV that um, 24 hours, and you would see the towers come down. Then you would see Arafat saying, I'm shocked. And then you would see five seconds of Palestinian children celebrating something. And this was sort of repeated over and over again, as if the media was producing this uh, idea that it was the PLO that actually had done this. So there wasn't anybody faulted yet, but the TV already had a thesis. And I felt strangely scared because I thought, oh, but these are my people somehow, right? I mean, I don't know them. But that's where my parent, my grandparents came from. So that gave me a sense of like, oh, I'm a, I'm a foreigner here. Not only am I a Chilean, but I'm also Palestinian and somehow I'm being accused uh, of this. What could this mean? So that really sort of woke me up from sort of a more happy assimilation back in Chile. And so when I got to Israel many years later... I ended up almost by chance, and sort of the story of how I got there uh, is told in the book, which hopefully will come out in English and will be called uh, Becoming Palestine. Um, when I got there, actually, I was uh, at Heathrow trying to get uh, to Tel Aviv, and I took the uh, Israeli uh, airline, El Al. 
And of course, it's not really uh, stewardesses who are working there. It's actually the security police, right? And I was really recognized as a Palestinian, a Chilean Palestinian. I was interrogated. It was a very, it was an ordeal. I never saw the airport. I was like in this small room three hours before the, the plane left. And I really got on the plane with a passport. I know this is something that a lot of people suffer uh, because the security level is very high and Usually security is very paranoid. They see terrorists everywhere. But it was sort of really also opened my eyes. And when I got there, I was already writing that book Hmm. about sort of the sense of how hard it is for a Palestinian, even for a third generation Palestinian or a second generation Palestinian to return because that is legally forbidden. And how also the question of returning uh, has been sort of the the main thing in the agenda for the Jewish who became Israelis in 1948 or even still today, right? So the word return carries a lot of weight. So I really worked on that idea of returning and the impossibility to return because where do you return to if you've never been there? You personally. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see your grandfather's home because uh, it, it, it doesn't exist or it has been taken by others, is that really yours, right? And all these sort of re- really complicated questions about essence and nationhood and belonging, etc., and and becoming or being. And it was really more than a, a nostalgic return uh, to a place that wasn't really mine. It was more about a sort of a, a, a very sharp... Uh, sort of uh, connection to the current, present politics of the place. Hmm. So that's really what the book is about. Wow. I I really hope it does come out in English. We'll see. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Lena. Oh, thank you so much. We were talking today to Chilean writer Lena Merwane about her first English-translated book, Seeing Red from Deep Vellum Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.